Greetings, Team Agila. Karibuni sana tena. We are now on our sixth episode of the Walking with God series, which is literally a series on the Gospel of John. Today, we are going to read John chapter 3. We're making progress, guys. We're making progress. We have uh, 18 more chapters to go. <laughs> ah, this could be, we might study this book the whole year. Who knows? Anyway, we're now in John chapter 3. And today I want us to read the whole chapter. But then now, because it's having to read the whole chapter, I don't want to have to do the, the you know, this is Bible study. We're here to do Bible study. So what I'll do is, is that I would like you at this very moment to pause this video. And I want you to go and read John chapter 3, the whole chapter, the whole chapter of John chapter 3, and then come back. Is that good? Yes. So I want you to pause the video now. Welcome back. Welcome back. Now, this chapter that you just read in the Bible. Now, listen, you I, don't continue this, this message unless you've read the chapter. Now, this chapter in all of the Bible, in all of the Bible, is probably the most important chapter for any person to read. That if it were possible in this world, for God forbid, obviously, but if it were possible that, let's say, the Bible disappeared, right? And that literally, maybe we lived in a world where the, every single Bible was taken away and, and it was banned and everything was taken away. That if this one chapter remained, it literally explains to us the entire gospel. This one chapter, it explains to us the plan of God from the beginning of time, which is literally Christ Jesus. This one chapter is the most potent chapter in all of the Bible, in my opinion, right? Um, that with this chapter, you can literally build your entire foundation of your faith on this one chapter. Now, the thing about this chapter is that it begins first with Nicodemus, who is a Jewish religious leader and a Pharisee. And what he's doing is that they're having an after-hour meeting, right? And the reason, the thing is, is to remember that the Pharisees were fiercely opposed to Jesus Christ and his whole ministry, right? And it's so, and so it's most probable because Nicodemus was, uh, not only was he a Pharisee, but also a leader amongst the Pharisees, that it is probably the reason why they're meeting after hours and after, after dark is because Nicodemus did not want to be seen to be hanging out with Jesus, right? And there were things that he needed to understand. In fact, I don't know if you guys have watched this series called The Chosen. It has such a great representation of this conversation that Nicodemus and Jesus are having. I'd recommend it highly to anyone who wants to be able to uh, go through the Gospels. Is, you know, go, go, go watch uh, Chosen. It's a really great series. It's free of charge, so you can just go and watch it um, on YouTube, or they even have an application that you can watch it on. Great, great series. I'd encourage anyone who's watching to go watch it. Now, the thing about this interaction, Nicodemus comes and he's having this interaction with Jesus. It's after hours because he doesn't want to be seen. And the thing is that this interaction actually, even if you go look in, your, in the Bible, actually begins in chapter 2. So in John chapter 2 and verse 23, in fact, even there it says in the title, in my Bible at least, it says uh, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, right? And this actually starts in chapter 2. And it says, 
from chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. And so this is actually where I believe this John chapter 3 actually ought to start. It actually is ought to start from John 2 verse 23, right? So that you can be able to understand in a full context what this flow is really about and what this chapter is really trying to tell us. Because what we see from the onset of this interaction that Jesus is having with Nicodemus is that Jesus fully understands the human condition. It says that Jesus knows all about people, that they cannot be trusted. One minute they are singing your praises and the next thing they are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. It was this very same people and Jesus knew. No one needed to tell Jesus about human nature. Right? He knew what was in each person's heart and it wasn't good. You know, there are so many times that we go to God with these negotiations where we tell him, Lord, if you just do this and this for me, I promise, I promise I will never do X, Y, and Z. Right? Or there are times where we're in the euphoria of his presence, where we've come from, uh, you know, we've come from a worship concert or whatever it is and we come from you know this the euphoria of his presence and we begin to make declarations that we are so convinced that we can keep lord i will never i will never i will never do this i will always but what we see in this chapter 2 right at the very end from verse 23 is that jesus knows all about our human nature he is the creator and maker of all things and he knows us he knows our hearts are deceitful above all else. And he knows that we cannot be trusted. There's some sermons I remember. There's someone I think I remember watching where this guy, this pastor, was, this preacher was asking us, was rather saying, you know, can God trust you? And literally the answer is no. <laughs> and he knows it. He's like, God can answer that for, for us. <laughs> when, when There's no need to go into, tap into the emotions of can God trust you. He can't. <laughs> And he says it here, he's just there like, ah, nah, nah. Because Jesus knows all about people. He knows how fickle we are. He knows how weak we are. He knows all about human nature and the deceitfulness of our hearts. And so in the context of this, in comes Nicodemus meeting Jesus at night so that he, can, he can't be seen to be meeting with him. So already here is Nicodemus who has this desire to know Christ, but he's also fearful of men. And can't meet Christ openly, right? And Jesus doesn't reject him. He still meets with him. Why? Because Jesus knows all about us. He knows all about human nature, right? And Jesus, knowing the human condition of sin, knowing and understanding what Nicodemus is really asking about and what he's really seeking to do, because Nicodemus says that, you know what? From the miraculous, sign God is, miraculous signs that God does through you, you, clearly God is with you. But this is what Jesus tells Nicodemus, that the only remedy for the human condition is for you, for you to be able to do the will of God and to be accepted by him, you must be born again. You must be born again. The answer is not to fix what is broken. For Jesus, the answer is to make it all new again, to make it new again. 
you must be born again. And of course, for Nicodemus, and I can imagine, you see, for now, us guys, we're now working. And a lot of time when we read the scriptures, we're reading the scriptures from our context. But many times we don't necessarily understand the context of this person who is hearing this phrase for the first time of being born again, where he's thinking to himself, is this there like, but how is that possible? Because in a literal sense, if someone came and told you, you must be born, you know, now we know what born again means. But you see, when Nicodemus, when he had these words, he's just there like, what do you mean? You're trying to tell me, how is this that someone can, you're trying to say, like, you have to go back into your mother's womb and then be born again. How can this be? How can someone be born again? Don't think about it from the way we know it now. Think about it then. The guy is just like, you mean born again, like, literally. So the thing that is so interesting is that when we think about it from that perspective is that literally Jesus' prescription wasn't to fix things. It was to make it new. That you must be born again. And of course Nicodemus is like, but how Lord? What you are seeing is literally physically impossible. But then Jesus explains to Nicodemus that this new birth that he's speaking of isn't a physical rebirth but a spiritual rebirth, one that happens through the Holy Spirit. But even still, Nicodemus is like, but how would that happen? And remember, at this point in time, Nicodemus is not operating in a space where, post-Jesus, where the Holy Spirit has come, and now there's this whole idea of, oh, wait, so there was a plan also to be able to fill us with the Holy Spirit, right? So Nicodemus has no context around what Jesus is talking about. So not only is he confused about the, how this physical rebirth happens, he's like, oh, okay, so you're not talking about a physical rebirth. Okay, cool. Then Jesus says it's a spiritual rebirth. He's just like, wait, but how would that happen? How does that even begin to happen, right? Because at this time, he's not, he, he, doesn't, he hasn't fully understand the depth of Christ's mission to cause us to experience this new birth. So though Jesus has a difficult time explaining the details of this new birth to Nicodemus, one of the things that he does is that he does help him and all of us to understand how this new birth happens, right? And the thing that he says to Nicodemus and to all of us is that it happens simply by believing in him. And here then again is another stumbling block. So here is this complex thing that Jesus is talking about, about being born again. So Nicodemus is like, wait fast, are you talking about physical rebirth? No, 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 Jesus clarifies, no, spiritual rebirth. Okay, but then also how does that happen? Uh, what do you mean? Like in terms of how does spiritual rebirth happen? And then now, take it deeper, Jesus now tells him, now this spiritual rebirth happens by just believing in me. Now again, I can see Nicodemus as being like, my guy, you're going to have to be a bit clearer on this, right? You're trying to tell me this complex thing called being born again, you've, the way you've already explained it, it's like even this spiritual rebirth is like, how the heck does that happen? That this thing called being born again is achieved in such an incredible, simplified way that I can imagine that it probably added to Nicodemus's confusion. I mean, if for example, let's say that there was some type of ritual that would need to happen that Jesus would create. Let's say that Jesus would come and say, forget about saying, him just saying you have to believe in me. Let's say if Jesus said that for you to be born again, what you need to do is that you have to undergo a 30-day blood ceremony, right? Where you have to go and chinja 15 sheep, 
And then after you change those 15 sheep, you have to go and cut your, your wrist and take a drop of your blood and mix it over here. After you do this, there's a 30-day prayer that you have to do and chant, right? Once you're done with that ceremony, you're considered born again. I feel like maybe Nicodemus would have been like, I feel like that makes up. You know, that, I, I get that, right? So there's a whole ritual that you have to do to experience the spiritual rebirth. But then now it's like, Mega, you've talked about this born again. So wait, how does that happen physically? You're like, no, no, it's not physical, it's spiritual. Okay, how does that happen spiritually? Because that sounds very complex. It's just believe in me and it's just like, Mega, you're going to have to ex explain this thing to me because this is too simple. It, it, it's not making any sense to me. Right? And so I feel like if there was some ritual, then Nicodemus would be like, ah, cool, cool, cool. So maybe I, now I, you know, let's go and talk about how everyone needs to undergo this ritual that we all need to do so that we all feel that now it's like once you've completed this ritual, you get a certificate that tells you you are now born again. <laughs> right? But instead, this is what Jesus explains about how this seemingly very complex act of being born again happens is that everyone who believes in me in jesus will experience a rebirth now the word belief here in the greek word is pisteo which means to think to be true to be persuaded of to credit and this is the key part for me to place confidence in to place confidence in and so what Jesus is saying that, so anyone that places their confidence in Jesus will experience a rebirth. New life that begins in the spirit and permeates every other area of their lives to the extent that they are literally reborn. Right? That they will literally be reborn in their spirit by placing confidence in Jesus. This is such a simple love message from the God who knows us, who knows that we are deeply flawed, a God who knows our nature and how corrupt we are. How he, this, is, this is the thing that is fascinating because remember when we started this, it says that Jesus knows all about us, that He doesn't come. And this is what the whole chapter 3 is talking about. He does not come with a message of condemnation, but a message of redemption and renewal. That anyone who places their confidence in Jesus will experience a new birth. And through that new birth, what will happen is, is that that rebirth will literally, the fruit of that rebirth is eternal life. Is us being able to experience that through this rebirth, we then begin to experience eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever places their confidence in him will not perish, but experience a rebirth, experience a eternal life. Does God love sinners? Does God love the world? This is how God has shown his love to all men. He sent Jesus to stand in place of us. And anyone that places their confidence in Jesus as the full and total solution to our depravity will experience God forever and ever and ever. 
I don't know about you, but that sounds like really good news to me. And you know, no wonder the angels marvel at us. Because it's like, what manner of love is this that God has showered upon these human beings? This deeply flawed creation. Where God says, I know all about human nature. And this is the extent with which that having known human nature, that rather than cast human nature away, that this is my plan to redeem the human being. This is my plan. And this is why the Bible continually describes the gospel as foolishness to the wise. It's too simplistic. It's almost like it was written by someone who wasn't interested in punishing sinners, but someone interested in loving them. I mean, what manner of kindness is that? What manner of grace is that? I mean, there's very few places, if anywhere, where we see this level of grace demonstrated by humanity, and especially not towards sinners. You know, when I think about, for example, like one of the things that has obviously this week been something that has... um, over the last couple of you know weeks that has enraged so many people is this uh, thing with the, that happened to this lady that was assaulted by border border riders right and you know who, who the, the, it was one of the, it was a deeply disturbing incident and we alongside many others wanted to see justice you know we were like you know we want to see justice we want to see those guys hang we want to see those guys in prison you know but imagine just imagine with me if these men were remorseful and someone came and said, I will stand trial for those men so that they can go away free, you would think that person was mad. For those guys, for those sinners, for those men, you would think that person, I mean, who would do such a thing? Do you not know what they've done? Do you not know the kind of monstrosity that they've done and actioned? Why would you do that? You know, in fact, to be honest, the closest thing I can think of that comes close to this level of madness is the relationship between a parent and their child, and more specifically, I'd say a mother and their child, where a guy could be, I mean, how many times do we know this, where a guy could be the bottom of the barrel in all of society and their mother would still believe in them. It's a foolish love. This Jesus who knows all about human nature says that anyone, anyone who places their confidence in me will experience eternal life. The message of the cross is foolishness to the wise because at face value it is foolish love. It is a seemingly reckless love. You know that song? The, oh, the reckless love of God. It's reckless. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, Paul speaks of this foolish plan of God where he says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made known God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He, was, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. 
It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. This is the plan that God put together for the redemption of our human nature. He put together a plan that says that in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done, in spite of your corrupt nature, that when you put your confidence in Jesus, you will experience a new birth. You will experience life. You will experience what eternal life is, Zoe. You will experience progress, vitality, fruitfulness now and into eternity, forever and ever. And so for all of us who have put our confidence in Christ Jesus, we are partakers of this seemingly foolish love. This is why Nicodemus is so puzzled by all this. It doesn't make sense. But for us, who know how messed up we are, this, is, this plan is exactly what we need. You know, the thing that is interesting is that, you know, every single time that I pray, I'm so conscious of this. I'm so conscious that the only reason I have any standing before God is because of Jesus Christ. Like there's literally nothing that I have done or can do that has given me any right standing before God. Because when I pray and I come and I bring myself to say, you know, Lord, see what I'm doing. You know, I'm here, you know, uplifting your people. I'm here preaching your word, God. I'm here tithing and I'm here doing all these things. Would you not provide for me? Would you not bless me on account of the things that I'm doing? And the reason why I can't bring to myself to say those things is because in the same breath, there are many other things that I do that would make me deserving of death. And so there are many other things in terms of there are these few things that I do where it's just like I'm doing things the right way. But then there's all these other things that I'm not doing the right way. And my thing is this, is that if my standard of righteousness is my works, my friend, (laughs) if they were to be measured on a scale, I would be deserving of nothing but wrath. I have more works that ought to bring me judgment than those that would bring me blessing. And so literally when I come before God, there's a deep realization that I have nothing to stand on, that the only confidence that I have is Jesus. This is the only confidence that I can bring before God. That is not because of anything that I've done, but it's only because of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I can come in confidence before God. He is the one for whom all things he does are pleasing to the Father. He's the only one who, where everything he does is pleasing. As for me, some things are, but most things, I'll just be there, just there like, yeah, there's a few things here, but brah, if you were to read this on a scale, and my friend, I, I cannot tell you, to me, this is such good news, that I don't need to come with anything. 
other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my standing. He is my confidence before God. And the good news for us always is that we have Jesus, that we have Jesus, that he is the reason why we get to get into this club called the kingdom of God. He is the reason why we are lavished with all kinds of extravagant promises. He is the reason why we have authority over the enemy. The enemy doesn't respect your authority. He respects the authority you have submitted to, which is Jesus Christ. And so having said all this, how then does all this very practically manifest itself in our lives? How does the fact that we have placed confidence in Jesus Christ very literally manifest itself in our lives? Because what does this confidence then look like on a day-to-day basis? What does that confidence look like that we have received eternal life? What does that confidence, placing our confidence in Jesus Christ literally look like? And I believe the answer to that question exists in the second portion of John chapter 3, which we just read. In John chapter 3, in the second portion, where we read about John the Baptist and his disciples coming to complain about Jesus Christ, and they come to complain and say, and basically try to appeal to John the Baptist to be like, my guy, why is this guy baptizing more people than you? You are the OG. You're the one who started this thing. Why are guys going to that guy to be baptized and not you? And what John the Baptist does is that he demonstrates to us the posture of one who has placed their confidence in Jesus. In John 3 and verse 30, it says, He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. My friends, the manifestation of a heart that has placed its confidence in Jesus Christ is revealed through this. He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. What this literally means is that we place less and less confidence in ourselves, less and less confidence in this world, less and less confidence in our friends, our connections, our abilities, and instead we place more and more confidence in Jesus Christ, the one who gives us new life. This is why I really like the definition of belief as confidence. Because the question is this, where is your confidence? Where does your confidence rest? Is it in you? Is it in your connections? Is it in your family? Is it in your, the family name? Or is it in Christ Jesus? You know, the thing is, is that I don't think we understand, and many times I've always felt this, the great privilege I don't think we have any idea what a privilege it is to get to a place in your life where the only person you can rely on is Jesus Christ. This is a tremendous blessing because confidence placed anywhere else is a dead end. And it's just better to get there sooner rather than later, rather than to place confidence consistently in things that are literal dead end. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 7 says this, one of my favorite portions of scripture. It says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wasteland. They will not see prosperity when he comes. They will dwell in parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. 
And in verse 7 it says, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Doesn't that sound like life? Doesn't that sound like the manifestation of life? Of the life that literally Jesus talks about where he says that those who place their confidence in me, that they will be like a tree planted by water. That's life. That sends out its roots by stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Fruitfulness. Zoe. And so the thing that I want to ask again today, where is your confidence? And what I want to leave you with today is this, that when we begin this journey of rebirth by placing our confidence in Jesus Christ, and in very simple terms, what this journey is all about is this, that this journey of be- that, that begins with putting our confidence in Jesus, this is what this journey looks like, is that he must become greater and greater. And I must become less and less. For me at this very moment, how this has looked very practically for me at this very moment, and there are many ways in which this always consistently is a daily question that you ask. How can he become greater? How do I become less? How this has become very literal for me in a very practical sense at this very moment is that lately, I think I even talked about this last week. We talked about it last week actually. Where this year, the journey for me of has become where of, of becoming less and less is by praying more and more, right? Because someone who prays is someone who in a very literal sense has placed their confidence and dependency on God. Just yesterday, facing an overwhelming situation, my usual reaction, in fact, my usual reaction would have been to try and sit down, let me try and figure this thing out. How do I figure this out? How do I figure this out? How do you figure this out? Okay, maybe I need to call so and so. I need to to figure out how to do this. Like always in that space where any situation that comes, your your initial, initial instinct and reaction is, how do I figure this out? But yesterday, my response was different. Yesterday, my response was, I need to take some time. I need, I need a time out to go and just seek the Lord of this. To seek his wisdom. And the thing that's amazing is that the way in which I am allowing God to become greater and greater and for me to become less and less at this moment is learning how to pray more and more. Because a person who prays is someone who is saying, that my confidence and my dependency is on God. But my confidence is in Him. That He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. And this is the ongoing journey of belief in Christ Jesus. This is the ongoing journey of the manifestation of our confidence in Him. And so today I want to ask you, in what ways is He becoming greater and greater in your decision making? In what ways is he becoming greater and greater in the way that you view life? In what ways is he becoming greater and greater in the choices that you make? In what ways is he becoming greater and greater in the way that you deal with people and especially difficult people in your life?
in what ways is it becoming greater and greater in the way you conduct your financial affairs? In what ways is he becoming greater and greater in your business dealings? In what ways is he becoming greater and greater in the way that you work? In what ways is he becoming greater and greater in how you relate in the church, with the church, with other believers? Because the thing is, is that the manifestation of our confidence in him is that he must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. You know, what's interesting is this, when you look at that story of John the Baptist with his disciples, what the disciples were really trying to tap into was John's ego. Why is that guy baptizing more than you? Why is he doing this more? And what does John say? That actually, this is not about me, it's about him. And it needs to become more and more and more and more and more about him. In this phrase of him becoming greater and us becoming less is the insight through which we live out this new birth that we have received through faith in Christ Jesus. That he must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. And I pray today that God would begin to reveal to us every day that we would come before him and our question would always be, how can I make you greater and greater today? And how can I become less and less today? This is the manifestation of confidence and the confidence that we have placed in him the, the confidence that we have placed, the manifestation of a new birth, this is what it looks like. That he must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word that you have ministered to us. Father, I pray that this word would uh, permeate our hearts, that we would begin to look and see every day, every day, every day, that we would purpose, that you would become greater and greater, and that we would become less and less. This is the manifestation of our confidence in Jesus Christ. That he must increase, we must decrease. Show us the ways in which, direct us in the direction of the ways in which we can cause that he will increase as we decrease. Our confidence is in his name. That we must decrease, he must increase and show us every day how we can manifest this in our lives every day that he must become greater and we must become less and less thank you for this word we honor you we magnify your name for it's in jesus holy name we pray amen Hey guys, thank you so much for watching. Listen, if this message blessed you, please be sure to share it with someone whom you love. Share it with a friend, a colleague, anyone. And then also, listen, support us. Support this ministry so that we can be able to make more dope content and be able to spread this message of the kingdom to as many people as possible. And then, make sure that you subscribe. Sawa.
subscribe. Subscribe, wherever the button, subscribe, subscribe. God bless you guys. Thank you.